Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Kortz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Welcome back to the Neurosurgeon's Journey. Um, as always, this is Mike and Dr. Johnson. How are you today? I'm doing well. Recording from home. Apologies if you hear uh, background noise, but but doing well. Yeah, there's a couple of people mowing their lawn outside too. So <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll try to mute uh, when we're when I'm not talking. So we're really excited about today's topic. Um, today serves to start off our Innovators in Neurosurgery series uh, here at TNJ. And we are so grateful and honored to have Dr. John Adler um, join us to start us off. He is an emeritus professor of neurosurgery at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he has served for over 30 years in numerous roles, including as the Dorothy and TK Chan Endowed Professor of Neurosurgery, as well as a professor of radiation oncology. He completed his medical school at Harvard before conducting his neurosurgery residency training at Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital, after which Dr. Adler completed a fellowship in radiosurgery under Lars Lixell at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He's known for improving on Dr. Lixell's gamma knife technology through his groundbreaking CyberKnife invention and founding of biotechnology companies Accurate Inc. and later Zap Surgical Systems. He has served as CEO, CMO, or on the board of multiple companies and organizations in neuroscience, biotechnology, and medical education, notably founding the Curious Journal of Medical Science in 2009. His accomplishments and spirit for innovation have been validated in high esteem through numerous awards and distinctions, most recently being honored with the Cushing Award and Technical Excellence and Innovation in Neurosurgery at the 2018 AANS Annual Scientific Meeting. Dr. Adler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike, and uh, thank you, Jeremiah. You're welcome. Great job with the intro, Mike. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a very distinguished career, uh, hard to pack into just a few sentences. So, Dr. Adler, again, thank you so much. Dr. Johnson, although it's probably self-evident, uh, I think it'd be good to give some context for what innovation is and why it's so important in neurosurgery, uh, as well as in pursuing a career in neurosurgery. Yeah, definitely. I mean, innovation is, is an interesting word as uh, we won't get too much in the nitty gritty, but is, an, is a way to tease it out from invention. Uh, it, it can be, it can be confusing. So an innovation, I mean, in, in short is just essentially bringing something new creative idea into, into realization in the world. It can be a lot of different things. I think in medicine, we, we use it as uh, as a new kind of version of something we already, a concept we already know that is, that is applied to, to medicine and to patient care. Uh, that's an advancement, you know, I mean, I think you can say, what is an invention? You know, it's more of like a physical entity, which sometimes inventions and innovations are kind of entangled, but in general, it's, it's you know, pretty obvious, I think to most people that it's like a new, a new novel uh, way of doing something. And, uh, and some people really have a knack for seeing the future and putting together the pieces as, as, as technologies become available into new, into new treatments or tech, you know, techniques to diagnose, treat, or help patients. Um, and so in our realm, that's, that's really, that's really how we typically use the word innovation. Uh, Dr. Adler, if he has any input, I'm happy to, happy to hear his view of it because he's, he's in this space even more, much more than I, um, but that's my thoughts on it. Yeah. I, mean, I think you've said it well, Jeremiah. And uh, I mean, innovation is kind of a, an approach to life. It's a way of, as you said, uh, reimagining what's possible 
and ideally kind of grounded in, you know, real important philosophies. And in our world, it's pretty self-evident uh, as neurosurgeons, it's our job to do better for our patients. And neurosurgery has really been defined by waves of innovation as much, if not more than just about any other specialty. And so I think I could feel the current myself as an innovator, and maybe that's why I became a neurosurgeon in the first place. Um, so as long as patients are dying of neurological diseases, uh, we got our work cut out for us. And that means we need ever more innovation. It's a way of life. I like that. So Dr. Adler, we always love to hear your indiv- you know, our, our guests' individual paths to neurosurgery, and you're, of course, no exception. Um, it'd also be uh, prudent to hear you know, over time, what has excited you about neurosurgery, um, radio surgery, biotechnology, uh, and how it has led to the innovator and pioneer and leader uh, in the field that we uh, have before us today? Yeah, I, I have to say that there was never a seminal moment or nor was I predestined to be a neurosurgeon and doing what I'm doing today. I do liken Steve Jobs' you know, observation in life that it only makes sense looking backwards, uh, never looking forward. Uh, so um, I grew up in a very uh, middle-class family in a very middle-class town and uh, you know, surrounded mostly by people who were tradesmen and worked in you know, kind of factories. And, and my own father was a, a bookkeeper, small town accountant. I had really no exposure to medicine other than the uh, family doctor who I'd see every few years or something for stitches or, you know, some relatively minor problem. Um, so I knew nothing about medicine per se, but I, I always did gravitate towards the sciences. And it was the sciences that, you know, kind of, I knew destined to be involved in at some level. And, uh, and the life sciences were kind of, it were at the time were particularly exciting given the emerging understanding of uh, molecular biology. And so uh, I chose to go to Harvard, uh, you know, kind of want to go to the big city, um, having grown up in a town of, you know, two or 3,000 people. And, uh, and there's nothing more exciting than going to Boston, uh, which was all of an hour and a half from where I grew up. And uh, um, and there, you know, the molecular biology became intertwined with uh, medicine. And a lot of the friends I had, they were, let's go to medical school. And in fact, I had been at, at um, I'd been at Harvard for no more than a few weeks and talking to one of the teaching assistants in organic chemistry, which I was uh, taking at the time. And he, he kind of, he said, well, why would you ever want to get a PhD in molecular biology? Of course, you're going to go to medical school. And he said, well, I just got my PhD. I'm headed off to medical school. And it was just like there was no real consideration to do anything other than med- medical school. And it had to do with some of the times. I think those times were vague. Like now, there's a lot of ec- economic uncertainty in the 70s and a lot of unemployment. Um, and, of course, the Vietnam War was just unwinding. And so, I mean, I don't think I thought about the subject in that great depth, but hell, I was taking medical school classes or, or pre-medical school classes. And uh, um, it just kind of worked out before, you know, it. I was going to Harvard medical school and uh, really without more forethought than that. And once in medical school, I didn't know what I was going to do with medicine. So I figured I'd do what my family practice doctor was and 
end up in a family practice doctor. But then I met surgeons. And I actually very early on met neurosurgery just by a fluke. Um, I was trying to do a cardiac surgical rotation or, or my surgical uh, general surgery rotation. And uh, it wasn't open. And I had to find a slot for a month to do something. And, uh, and neurosurgery just kind of popped up on, on the page. And I said, ah, I'll do neurosurgery, whatever. And, wow. uh, and I ended up really enjoying and liking it. But then I saw seven years these guys were working. And I said, ah, I don't want to do a seven-year residency. So I went back really determined to become a general surgeon. And I finished medical school, um, intended to be a general surgeon. And I matched in the, um, to the Brigham uh, General Surgery Program. And it was uh, really one of the toughest years of my life. In those days, residency was beyond grueling. And it was, you know, an everyday play, every day, uh, every other night on call. um, uh, And really, arguably abusive, but arguably exhilarating too, because you got an amazing amount of authority uh, as as an intern. But I, once again, rotated through neurosurgery. I just, I, I couldn't leave, I couldn't avoid it. And uh, they happened to have an opening in the program for the next year. And uh, the, one of the residents dropped out. And I made the faithful decision of leaving general surgery and going to neurosurgery. Uh, again, without any grand ambitions, just going to become a neurosurgeon. Figured, you know, I don't know, maybe move back to Connecticut where I'd grown up and be a neurosurgeon there. I didn't, hadn't thought much about it. And it really, again, kind of, as luck would have it, I, you know, I was directed to go to the lab for a year. And in the lab, I met a uh, Lars Granholm, who was uh, the chairman of the Karolinska. We were working in the lab together. Wasn't really terribly motivated, excited by what I was doing. It was what my chairman told me to work on. And uh, he said, well, you know, if you ever get some time, come to Sweden. And it happened that I needed to have one more research year uh, before I finished and need to make a decision where to go. And, uh, you know, I said, why not Sweden? So uh, that's awesome. (laughs) Next thing I know, I was at the Karolinska and even more bizarre than that. um, They stuck me in an office in on the outskirts of the whole department that just so happened was right next to Lars Luxell's office, who was at this point kind of a little bit of a black sheep. You know, once you once a chairman gets done with his tenure, they try to exile him so that, you know, it's like Donald Trump or something. You don't find him kind of poisoning the well of the new administration. And so they exiled him. And I just happened to have my office exiled next to him. And it was clearly a transformational year. And just I had just finished my kind of advanced surgery, advanced nursery program, Mass General, and watched Roberto Harris and, uh, you know, Robert Ogeman. I mean, just giant Martuza, these the big names of the time, uh, you know, when operating with them and, you know, they were wonderful surgeons, but, you know, I watched patients linger in the ICU for, you know, a month after, you know, pineal tumor surgery or some complex skull base operation. And I watched the same patients now get treated as virtual outpatients, the Karolinska uh, with a gamma knife. And I said, this is too cool, man. I, I can't not get involved in this. And uh, that was that. Well, we're very happy that uh, some of the happenstances happened <laughs> and you are uh, before us today uh, as, the, as the pioneer that you are. So I think a lot of our listeners are um, early in their training, med students, uh, residents, uh, and what have you. 
I think it'd be good to get an overview of what radio surgery is and um, how cyber knife and gamma knife are uh, different. I really likened uh, radio surgery to a magnifying glass. How's that? Seems like a dumb analogy, but you, know, I mean, you, you take a magnifying glass and you put it in front of the sunlight and you transform a, a tepid force into something that's really quite unique and quite special and quite potent. And radio surgery merely tries to accomplish the same objective, except with ionizing radiation. Now, to do that, you need a lot of technology to, you know, accurately position the tumor in space because you're not looking at it, you're not seeing it, and you ideally you want to shoot the tumor from many directions as possible. So, radio surgery is defined by two very basic elements: accurate targeting and maximal crossfire of radiation beams so that you get as much concentration of the radiation of the tumor as possible. And that's it. And once you do that, you can deliver a blade of energy to targets anywhere in the body, but of course, this was relevant here in the brain and spine. Um, and I mean, this seemed like a very simple idea when I first absorbed it uh, under large LaSalle tutelage, you know, in the 1980s. And then, but it's gone on to prove to be very powerful. And most uh, neurosurgeons are kind of amazed to hear that radio surgery is hands down the most common operation neurosurgeons in America do for brain tumor, hands down, just by building codes. Uh, so we know. But it's been very quietly happened. In fact, it's, this is, goes on despite the fact that the procedure doesn't pay terribly well, despite the fact that I don't think the procedure doesn't get necessarily a lot of respect. I mean, everyone is very, you know, and for good reasons, you know, it's it's going to the operating room and, you know, disarticulating someone's skull or, you know, approaching it with, you know, cool endoscopes from, you know, looking at the brain from inside out. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful experience. And, and, you know, people are seduced by brain surgery by being inside the brain and looking at it. And as was I. So I, I understand the beauty of conventional surgery. However, from a patient perspective, I understand the beauty of radio surgery. And, and it's also clear as day that the future is not going to be ever more invasive operations. In fact, I think we've long since reached the apex of interventional surgery, even though some neurosurgeons are loath to give it up. Increasingly, neurosurgery is becoming less and less and less invasive. It's inevitable. Uh, it just, it's, it doesn't make it, it's, it's, it's also if, if only from a cost perspective, no matter what neurosurgeons love to do, patients want it and it's much less costly to do things less invasively. And, and as we understand the biological mechanisms, radio surgery, but even more so the body and, you know, you know, immunological approaches to cancer, for example, they interleave very well, nicely with radio surgery. So um, if you want to know what the future of neurosurgery is going to look like, you need to go to Star Trek because Star Trek really did show us, you know, a generation ago when neurosurgery is going to be. And it's our job as innovators to make sure the future is recognized. And that's how I viewed my own responsibility. here. That's a really interesting uh, viewpoint. Uh, you know, being in vascular, we have a very similar Sure. duality with endovascular versus open vascular, right? It's like, oh, you know, word for word, pretty, pretty similar between the two. Whereas, you know, the, the, the alluring piece of, of vascular surgery is the open vascular aneurysm clipping, avium surgery, et cetera. Whereas, you know, patients and the less invasive 
you know, go home the next day. Um, surgeries, endovascular ones, uh, are maybe, maybe less respected in some ways or less talked about in some ways, but, but, uh, but extremely effective if, you know, if selected properly. And, uh, and so I think we have a similar, similar thing going on in, in this part of the field as well. I know you do. And, and, uh, and I'd never wanted to be the, the last civil war surgeon. All he didn't want to do was soft limbs. I mean, it's, we'd like to think that, <clears throat> Awesome. Uh, I want to be the part of the forces driving the future to the best of my ability. And right. I know radio surgery is part of that. That's great. So Dr. Adler, I think it would be awesome to hear you inspire, you know, young students, residents who uh, I'm sure are brimming with creativity and ideas and they see some of the things uh, maybe have had similar experience to you where they've seen a problem or they see a way a problem is being addressed and they want to do something about it. How does one get started to go down the road of innovating, inventing, coming up with uh, realizing a new idea? I mean, the idea itself is, is ephemeral and actually almost, almost, a nuisance because, um, and I say this tongue in cheek, because I really believe that 99.9% of really good ideas, meritorious ideas, never see the light of day because it's just too hard to bring them into fruition. And so I spend more time trying to discourage people from pursuing their ideas than encouraging them. <laughs> That's awesome. Just because they, it's for most people going to be too painful a price to pay that they're just kind of it's a, it's a wasteful detour in their life when they could be off, you know, treating patients or learning or being with their family and stuff. So, I, of course, I, I love innovation. I love innovators and I will do everything I can to support innovation for the rest of my life. But it, it is not necessarily a price that many people want to pay. And I don't want people to look at my own life to say, oh, you sacrificed. So that's not, I'm not trying to be a, a martyr per se here, but I, I can tell you in my own life to sort of fulfill the, the work I've done, my life mission has required, you know, considerable, you know, compromise and, and, and I'll use the word sacrifice, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a little like your residency, you know, like your residency is an incredibly challenging, demanding time of your life. You probably may not give it up for anything else, but there are a lot of sacrifice goes into being your, being a resident. And I'd say, you know, innovation is, very similar path. The, the difference is with innovation, there's no, there's no end point. Clearly, they're clearly defined end point. And neurosurgery can say, okay, I put in my seven years, I'm done. I, you know, I didn't screw up too badly. I'm licensed and I can, I've, I can go treat patients. But in, in, with the innovation world, you just don't know. And there's forever seven. You're always failing. The trouble with innovation is you are forever failing. It's failure is defines your life. You wake up with failure, you're going to bet with failure. And it's incredibly discouraging. And that's why very few people kind of have can put up with the abuse. It takes a certain temperament. And so it isn't so much the good idea. The, the good idea starts the process. I mean, I think you really need to have, uh, be utterly committed to the idea and, and the objective of the idea. If it's just to make a bit of money, I tell people, don't waste your time. It's not worth it. I mean, a few people are, can you know, make a clever tool or device and then license it and make a have a make a you know a handsome little money on the side. All good if you want to do that. I'm 
I, I, I salute you and I have good friends who do that. And I've even done that in a couple of cases myself. But true innovation where you change a field requires incredible persistence and ability to tolerate failure. It isn't always just the invention per se. That germ of an idea is, is a great place to start, but making it real takes, you know, getting people to agree with you. It means getting, you know, raising money. It can, it means, uh, you know, working with the government to get reimbursement. It means uh, getting through uh, uh, just the, the challenges of competitors who really don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. So what you'll find in life is very few people in the ecosystem of innovation and the world of medicine in general, often really care about patients. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's generally it's by, about money and power and power and money. And, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, they're happy to get in the way of innovation, happy to slow it down. I mean, really happy to kill patients, literally kill patients. You know, and I've been involved with, uh, you know, patent infringement lawsuits involved in another one right now where yeah, it's all a pile of bullshit, but it's really an effort to slow me down, um, really, because they have money at stake. And I understand they have shareholders and they care about their shoulders, but no one seems to care about patients. And that's why it's very important for neurosurgeons. You are the, we are the only ones who truly care about patients. And, it, and you have to make your innovation tightly coupled to better patient care. And that's I think if you point. do that, that's the only way you're going to persist and that's through the years. Point. But it, you know, it's not many people have the temperament to be abused so much. <laughs> and so I, I, for example, you know, I'm currently in a fundraise um, myself and hopefully getting very close to the end. And, um, and most innovators look at fundraising or what most entrepreneurs look at fundraising as being the hardest part. And they, I think disproportionately focus on, on fundraising and, you know, and it, it is the lifeblood of, of startup life. So I, I get that. And what makes it so frustrating is that you're mostly hearing no, 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 no. You know, when you go to the operating room, most of the time you're coming out and you're, you come out and the family is adoring you and worshiping you, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful feel. You're getting positive reinforcement all the time. But in my word, it's mostly no. And here I am. I'm at a stage of life where I've been reasonably successful. But still, I'm hearing mostly no, 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 no. And, and so it's hard to hear somebody knows. It just is. And so I, I bitched and moaned to a, a friend of mine who's in venture capital recently. And I said, you know, Curtis, I said, I'm, I'm a lousy fundraiser. And he said, no, no, John, you're, very, you're, you're just as good as everybody else. This is just the nature of the game. You're going to hear no so much that it wears on your psyche. And, and that is kind of an important element of the whole, you know, innovation ecosystem. Most of the time you're going to be hearing no, and you just got to say, I'm going to innovate. I'm going to persist. So for you, what was getting cyber, like what peaked your interest in moving Gamma Knife and expanding on Gamma Knife to develop CyberKnife and how did you move the concept to reality? You, you touched on some of those things through your recent, your just uh, recent answer, but um, you personally, how did that journey pan out? Well, after being totally swept away by Lars Luxell's vision of radio surgery, understand Mike, there was no radio surgery at this stage of the world. None. Right. It was, <clears throat> everything was a big operation. I just fell in love. And then I said, well, 
if this stuff works in the brain, I mean, obviously it's going to have to work for the rest of the body. Right. And I said, well, how might that happen? What, how we might do that? And I just, you know, had a lot of time in, uh, during my fellowship and in Sweden, um, as I like to say, a lot of dark nights where I was even in my office or at home with nothing to do other than a couple of kids. Um, and I just kept noodling on the problem and Sally appeared self-evident to me that the imaging revolution that was happening would uh, dovetail into targeting mechanisms that didn't require stereotactic frames. And so just bam, you know, one night I said, well, it's going to happen. Why not me? So I, um, I just became committed to the idea of doing uh, X-ray image to image correlation, which became really the first you know, form of image guidance. Um, and, uh, you know, did a little bit of work at Harvard, finishing my, during my chief residency year, but really it was the impetus to come to Stanford during my, um, during my first job as, as assistant professor at the VA hospital, like luck would have it. Um, and, um, and I started working with the engineering department, uh, looking at machine vision and uh, how might we look at x-ray projections and correlate them against a prior CT scan and came up eventually with this concept of uh, um, uh, image image correlation, usually digitally reconstructed radiographs. And so you ask computers to simulate what x-ray projections might exist at the time of the treatment, depending on the exact patient position and orientation. And then the computers just very quickly compared this library of images with the real images that you were capturing. Um, and that became the intellectual foundation for starting making the cyber knife. Of course, the cyber knife that, you know, I, I was, knew I wanted to do something like the cyber knife. I didn't know what it would be. Um, you know, I just knew it would be grounded in image to image correlation and it would target outside the brain and head and neck. And, um, um, and, you know, you're forever looking for money. Uh, as you've already alluded to. And uh, it's clear that uh, this type of translational medicine does not have a lot of uh, love in academia. Um, academia loves basic research, um, uh, but to translate something into real clinical practice, it's hard to find the money. And, and I went, I did the usual route talking to the NIH and um, and, uh, you know, they could care less, um, was pretty clear. And uh, then I tried to talk to, you know, big companies who do have the money, you know, General Electric and Siemens and Varian, and, you know, they, you know, this was too ephemeral for them. And as, as I, these guys, big companies don't care about a new technology unless it's going to show some sort of revenue or bottom line result in the next two or three years. They, they're totally incapable of looking out more Long than term. just a couple of years in the horizon. Right. And so, you know, quickly what you realize is the people who do the heavy lifting, the true heavy lifting in this country are, you know, entrepreneurs. Um, and while I can't say I had an entrepreneurial role, well, Lexel was an entrepreneur. I mean, he certainly had, he started Electa, but it's more through his son. His son, Larry Lexel, did kind of the business side. I didn't have anybody like that. So I had to kind of wear both hats, trying to be the, the technical physician innovator and at least enough of a business innovator to get things started. And hell, I had always been in my, throughout my life, I, 
I was kind of a, an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, even when I, my first job was when I was 11 years old delivering newspapers and I had had literally a dozen jobs. You know, I mostly paid for college myself uh, with scholarships. And so I, I've always been comfortable about business. And, uh, and uh, so I just put the two together. And, uh, and one of the best things that happened to me was being at the VA hospital. <laughs> the VA hospital, I was really not very busy. Yeah, I went there hoping I was going to be a big skull-based surgeon. You know, I was going to be a, the ultimate surgeon. And it, there really just wasn't a lot for me to do. Um, but that was such a good thing because it gave me time to invent, create, and start uh, Accuray and, you know, make the cyber knife a reality. And as, as luck and fate would have it, a few years later, when the cyber knife was a reality at Stanford, my, my whole career just took off as a surgeon because it became a huge uh, attraction for patients with complex tumors that needed radiosurgery as part of their treatment solution. So um, I really believe that innovation, while it's a little bit of a detour off building a clinical practice, it ultimately totally reinforces your clinical practice and, and if done right. And so uh, I, I can't say I knew what I was doing and I won't pretend to be that smart, but I can tell you that it worked out pretty well. That's, that's a great story. I know I, as, as Dr. Adler and I have known each other before this, uh, I, I was a fellow at Stanford. And so I'm curious, I've seen the, the uh, picture on the wall in the hallways of the nurse surgery department of the first cyber knife kind of being lifted off of a truck by a crane and being put into Stanford. I'm curious when that happened and, and how that all, how, how that all kind of, um, coalesced where, where they, they put that into the hospital. I mean, were you already uh, like a viable company or was this like a proto prototype or how, how did that go? We weren't a viable company, but we were a company. <laughs> it wasn't even a prototype. We never built a machine yet. <laughs> and, uh, and then lastly, uh, you know, I don't know what the, we didn't know what we're doing, um, but it was the best we could do. We really had a lot of trouble raising money. And ultimately um, I, convinced Stanford to buy my first machine sight unseen with just a piece, a few pieces of paper. And, and they were very generous to me. There was a the president at the time, Ken Bloom, who actually just sent me a very nice email just a few uh, weeks ago that yeah, it was one of the best decisions he had made during his entire tenure as president or CEO at, um, at, um, at uh, Stanford. But he saw, you know, well, we had built a successful clinical program in radio surgery there using frames Right. And so, you know, I, I was delivering for the university. And, and so they had no reason to doubt my contributions to the medical school. Right. And so uh, when I came to them with my piece of paper and I had convinced uh, one of the board members that this was a good thing and he was helping me at Accurate, um, they said, OK. And so they signed a check for or they agreed to make progress payments for a grand total of one point three million dollars. And I also raised from some mostly neurosurgical friends. And I believe that that's a good source of early angel capital for some neurosurgical innovators, uh, a grand total of $500,000. So with that paltry sum of money, we went about to rent a little garage down in, in Sunnyvale. And uh, we, we tested some of the initial modules, but we didn't really have uh, uh, we didn't have a radiotherapy vault to actually build the machine right. and right. test it. And so, um, so we couldn't really make a machine. And so finally the medical school built a, 
not the medical school, but the hospital built this new vault where we put the, the first cyber knife and we put the side, we put the first cyber knife together inside the vault, inside the hospital. And yeah, but we were a company. Uh, then I, then based on those pieces of paper I, uh, that I had, I was able to sell, you know, another five machines across the United States. And, uh, and, you know, people were willing to take a flyer at that time. They took a flyer. Of course, they just need to make a, a progress payment. It was really like a, a it was really like a, a first Kickstarter, yeah. you know, uh, pre, so people gave me a little bit of money up front and that was the nightest to kind of make things happen. But, you know, it was like at least, uh, an order of magnitude and maybe as many as two order of magnitudes, less money than we really should have had. Right. Um, we were selling a machine for one, eventually $1.5 million. And it was costing us like two and a half million dollars to make these things. And so it's not a very good business. You know, you don't, you can't make it up for it in volume. And, and that's why eventually after we treated our first patient at Stanford, which was, uh, you know, a, an underwhelming accomplishment given that I could have done the same thing with a frame and, and, you know, 10% of the time and, yes. you know, more convincingly, uh, but it got us started and that's the way innovation is. And so at one point you asked me what an important book to read is. And I would argue that the, the best book I know in the innovative space is it's called the uh, Innovator's Dilemma. Innovator's Dilemma It's from a, a generation ago, but was widely recognized at that time. It still is recognized to some extent to explain how innovation works. And, and what it describes is that often an innovation seems like a step backwards, that the current modalities that you're trying to surpass actually are better than your initial form of the innovation. But you, you provide the foundation, the framework for making something that becomes better and better and better than, of course, transcends the previous technology. And so it was, I mean, my first machine was not a very good, it was paled in comparison to the existing radio surgical platforms at the time, but did of course build the foundation for the eventual success of the CyberKnife and treating a few million patients. That's great. Uh, just, just for the audience, if they're not familiar, just very briefly, what's the difference between CyberKnife and, and GammaKnife? Uh, what are the advantages okay. of CyberKnife? Well, a gamma knife uses a stereotactic frame for targeting and uses radioactive cobalt for converging beams of radiation on the tumor. And, you know, it's a wonderful technology, but does require the frame, which has many limitations with it. And radioactive cobalt is just bad stuff. The world's really trying to get rid of it. So, in fact, some countries now have actually outlawed cobalt. And so the CyberKnife uses uh, imaging alone, so it does not require skull, skeletal fixation. And uh, so wherever you have X-ray visible landmarks, you can now deliver radiosurgery. And it uses a small linear accelerator and a robot that it targets at the tumor from many directions. And it concentrates the radiation by tacking the tumor from many directions over this course of a 20, 30 minute treatment. Right. And so again, it, tar accurate targeting, one uses stereotactic frames, the other uses image guidance. Uh, Crossfire beams, either converging co radioactive cobalt or a moving uh, linear accelerator beam, all of which crossfire through the point in space. Those are the principles of radio surgery. Right. And my understanding is it also allows you to target more oblong targets, do, do procedures in the spine, whereas gamma knife is very much uh, limited to the intracranial space. Yes. Uh, absolutely. So the gamma knife is a brain only 
device. The, the CyberKnife today probably treats many more tumors outside the brain than it does in the brain. Right. You know, things like prostate cancer and lung cancer, and actually increasingly uh, cardiac arrhythmias or um, oh, wow. ventricular tachycardias. So Dr. Adler, this is a good segue to getting your perspective on where you see the field of uh, neurosurgical technology, radiosurgery going in the next 10, 20 years or so. Well, I almost kind of led with that discussion in some respects. And um, I mean, I think the world is just going to naturally get less and less invasive. And um, I urge the listeners to digest that story and hopefully contribute to it. I mean, anything that is less invasive than, than the predecessor technologies is intrinsically good. Now, you know, maybe in some way there will be a reimagination of open surgery and, and in ways that I can't possibly conceive. So I could be wrong, but I, again, likening back to Star Trek the, and the tricorder, I mean, we're going to do things as far as I can see in a painless, non-invasive extent to the greatest painlessness, non-invasive extent possible. And, and I really believe that you will have radiosurgical-like procedures literally for the next couple hundred years. Now, I don't know that the surgeons, you know, you know, 200 years ago could look into the future, especially neurosurgery, and say that this is, even Cushing could look into the future and see that the world is going to be what I think we can see it be like right now. Now, I'm not saying that any of the technologies I'm creating are necessarily going to be what exists in 100 or 200 years uh, but I think the idea of using directed energy, uh, which is what radio surgery is, is a, a force, an energetic force to manipulate structures and tumors inside the brain is going to be what's going to define the world of surgery. And in fact, we, re we need surgeons to re reevaluate what it means to be a surgeon. If it means, you know, using, you know, a, a scalpel or, or using, you know, your bipolar or something, whatever defines open neurosurgery in many neurosurgical brains. If that's the only way you can imagine neurosurgery going forward, then I wonder what the utility of neurosurgery is going to be in the future. Because I think it is going to be a non-invasive future. Not, can I predict what that's going to be? I can't. I mean, in terms of the timeline, I mean, is it 10 years? Is it 20 years? Is it going to 50 years? I mean, everything seems to take much longer than, than I would have ever imagined. But I think some of the biggest impediments to neurosurgical progress today are not technological. They're actually stupid things like reimbursement. They're, they're dumb things like, you know, uh, uh, societies and medical societies are very regressive. I mean, they, they try to hold on to the, the past rather than necessarily embrace the future, despite what they think of themselves. So um, I feel that if anything that's less and less invasive and effective and ideally cost-effective is going to be part of that future. And so I, in the near term, I can certainly imagine when it comes to tumors, we are gonna be using more and more immunomodulation, you know, whether it be checkpoint inhibitors or, or CAR T cells in the brain with dendritic cells, or, you know, I mean, things are outside my domain of expertise, but certainly fit my framework for less invasive, more effective treatments in the brain. And certainly in the cerebral vascular space, it's hard to envision a world in which isn't totally dominated by endovascular procedures. And maybe in new ways, maybe you're going to use pulsing magnets to kind of guide catheters in new ways to ever more, you know, smaller regions of the brain. I mean, that, that, again, that's not my space, 
But I and, and and spine surgery, I think we're you're already seeing a huge step towards less and less and less invasive. But who's to say we're we're still an order of magnitude away from being what could what's possible in the next few decades? Yeah. But when all is said and done, I believe radio surgery is as a form of de- precisely delivered directed energy is is a transformational concept that will be here for decades, to, if not generations to come. That is, I think, well said. I do have a follow-up question for you. I, like, like Mike alluded to, a lot of the listeners are, are young uh, and or even ambitious, have ambitions to become neurosurgeons but aren't in training yet. If someone is interested in this space, uh, how do they kind of prepare themselves for success? You obviously had no true formal training and in innovation or business per se. Um, is that how would you kind of counsel someone that's on the early end of the spectrum, early residency medical school about if they have ideas like or are interested in this space, how should they go about being exposed to the various things that they need to be successful like you have been? Well, uh, you don't need business knowledge. You don't need engineering knowledge. I mean, those are those are tools to accomplish what ultimately you're going to do. What you do need is you need deep domain knowledge and in the field that you're trying to transform. Right. And so it's much Go and be the best friggin' clinical neurosurgeon you can possibly be. You know, understand neurosurgery first and foremost. And ideally, uh, like in my case, I, you know, I think I was a good surgeon, a good open surgeon. I'm not going to say I was Yasser per se, but I was a good open surgeon. And I have no trouble getting in the face of other open surgeons and challenging, you know, them and their techniques and to do better. So get deep into your domain. And love your domain, and love, and then in your domain, find the problems that uh, you are well poised to sort of super, uh, transcend. So I think domain knowledge, nothing more important. And and when you start a company, that's your expertise in the company, right. not per se because you're an engineer. You know how to fundraise. You're not a CFO. You're not going to be. Uh, you're not going to be a head of regulatory. You are going to be the neurosurgeon. So just be a great neurosurgeon. I, I agree with that hundred percent. I would even add people that, um, you know, will do basic science research. It's the same thing. If your innovation is in the basic science level for a new therapy and, and, you know, you really know that space well. And then when you take it to, you know, to companies or, or, or to market, um, you're that in, irreplaceable person with that expertise, you know, the patients, you know, why you're doing it, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the, the basic science component of it and, and, and you really be the centerpiece. Um, of, of, of taking that to market uh, or in testing it in, in, in trials and all those, all those steps. And I, you know, and I, there may be some MBAs on this call who eventually listen, but you do not need an MBA. I mean, I, there, I mean, MBAs provide you a good business network and there's nothing wrong with having a good business network, but it's much better to spend the two years of that MBA learning or getting domain knowledge in my opinion. Right. right. I think that's good advice. Well, this has been inspiring to me as someone in that position and very, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Um, you mentioned the Innovator's Dilemma. You mentioned Star Trek. Are there any other books or uh, movies or courses or anything else in the space that uh, be, while becoming a great clinical neurosurgeon, people can you know, be engaging with? Um, nothing specific. You know, again, yeah. the... I, I, again, love Steve Jobs, you know, observation mm-hmm. about your life and it to... I, I don't think most people can look in the future and say, I want to be an innovator. I just, do you have to find something you want to innovate? It's not enough to, right. you know, innovation is not a job. It's a means to the end. It's right. a way if, to, if it's because it's because I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm an innovator. It's not, I'm not an innovator because I'm a neurosurgeon. 
And so uh, it's not an easy path. I, again, I would not wish this upon anybody because it's not easy. Um, and, you know, even now my company is surgical. It's just, it's hard. It's really hard. It's, this stuff is just, each one is like two res, two difficult residencies. It really is. And, and they're like your children. It's like how, if, I don't know if any of you have children, but once you have a child, you're so invested in this. This is, you love this person. You love this idea. You love, you're responsible. And, you know, if the child is crying at two in the morning, it's your child. You don't have the luxury of saying, I'm not taking care of my child. And the same with the company. You know, it's a Sunday morning and I'm taking care of my child here. That's what I'm doing. So I, I love children. I love companies. In some ways, I, I liken the two. But you have to be willing to accept that measure of responsibility because you do not have the luxury of walking away. Once you get going, if you're really an innovator, you're in it to the end until you're until they're off to college. It's your it's your responsibility. I think that's wonderful. I know we're running out of time uh, for, for to have you with us here. Um, I'm, I'm, I would love to have another half an hour to talk about your your subsequent steps after after you know uh, after uh, CyberKnife with uh, Curious and then your current company. Any any kind of like just brief like summarization of what you've been up to and why and why you took those next steps after uh, after the CyberKnife kind of experience rolled wound down. Well, Curious uh, was a a direct reflection to my own frustration with publishing. I just didn't like the fact that I, as an expert, you know, had trouble sometimes publishing my articles when I was this individual with the most domain knowledge conceivable and some reviewer would just get in my way. And generally they didn't stop me, but they just slowed the whole process down. And, uh, and again, I was very fortunate to be here in Silicon Valley watching the rise of social media and, and a whole new revolution in communication. And if you think about it, journals were really the first social networks, right. the first time the community got together and they produced something together. And so they curated content. And so uh, kind of energized by the social media revolution and, and a, a son who's in the ultimate publishing space, um, who, by the way, thought medical publishing was too difficult and too serious. But I felt that uh, I knew enough for an old guy, and it was going to take someone with some seniority to build a journal. So I had the credibility. So I just said, the hell with it, I'm going to do it. And uh, I mean, I've learned a lot as, as an old guy in the internet space. And um, again, it was not been an easy ride. Uh, but, you know, Curious is publishing, you know, 20 articles a day. And uh, really, we're within a couple of years of being the biggest medical journal in the world. So it's, uh, again, a difficult, difficult ride. Uh, would I have done it if I knew what I was getting myself into? I don't know. But, uh, you know, just keep looking forward. And now that Curious is, you know, a, a moderate success, and I think it's going to be a huge success, I'm, I'm very glad I did it. And, and Zap really is, uh, again, a response to my failures. I mean, Accuray, for all the success in treating, you know, millions of patients, and my way of thinking is still a failure. And maybe I have high standards or maybe I'm looking at the problem the way it needs to be looked at is that uh, if radio surgery is this utter revolution, uh, why aren't we doing more of it? And I look around the world and realize that nine out of 10 patients who would benefit from radio surgery today are not getting it. And we've had radio surgery around a generation or more. Right. So if radio surgery is this marvelous, this wonderful as I'm, because I really believe 
we should be doing much more of it. And, uh, but, you know, why are we not? Well, I've concluded that it's the cost and complexity of existing medical, uh, existing radiosurgical technology. Right. And the last is also the control. I mean, neurosurgeons make a lot of decisions about patients, but they don't control the technology. It's all controlled now by radiation oncologists. The equipment is arguably the most expensive and complex equipment in all of healthcare today. And so these are you know, legitimate barriers to the wider dissemination of radiosurgery. And so ZAP is intended to simplify radiosurgery and make it much more accessible for patients around the world, especially through the greater involvements of neurosurgeons. I mean, neurosurgeons are, I would argue, the most innovative spirits in all healthcare, uh, even more innovative than you know, cardiac surgeons and orthopedists and urologists. We're innovative. And it's very important to me to ensure the future of radiosurgery that neurosurgeons are involved in. And so the ZAPX is designed to be very much a neurosurgeon's tool. And conveniently, if neurosurgeons step up now, they can actually own their machine now. And when you own your own machine, you can actually make more money. So the beauty, I do know neurosurgeons. They like to make a good living. There's, they're not the highest paid specialty by accident. And so while I can't get them necessarily on a higher RVU for radiosurgery, if they choose to own their own system, as has increasingly happened you know, in neurosurgical practices, they can make a lot more money off the, the technical codes which is increasingly where a lot of healthcare economics are driven. So right. in the end, though, it's about making radiosurgery much more accessible to patients and hopefully making healthcare better. So both Curious and ZAP have a common theme of democratizing both medical knowledge and radiosurgery. That's perfect. That's a great way to end, I think. Uh, our guest has been Dr. John Adler. Thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, nice to meet you. Hey, Jeremiah, so great to connect again. You, you guys, too. Be good. Great as always. Have Thank great. you. Have Take a great care. Sunday. Bye-bye. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day and we look forward to next time.